0: Welcome back to another installment of the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Nathan O'Black.
1: Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation. I'm Nathan O'Black, and I'm once again joined in the Knox Cellar by Ryan Aris and Dr. Joe Boot, and I think Cromwell the dog is around here somewhere. Did you just wander out?
2: Oh, uh, he's usually around. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah,
1: he's the most interesting of all of us in the room, so <laughs> that's too bad. <laughs> but... Uh, what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, Joe, you've been bouncing around various podcasts discussing your new book, Ruler of Kings, and we thought, you know what, we, we ought to do that on our own podcast, so mm-hmm. that's our plan mm-hmm. for today. And uh, just before we get into that conversation, uh, some reminders to our listeners, one of them being uh, that we have our two Mission of God conferences coming up, one here in southern Ontario on May the 21st, and one in Edmonton, Alberta. On June 18th, and each each of these conferences are going to focus on utopianism and utopianism as the counterfeit kingdom of God. And uh, tickets are available for both of those conferences now uh, on our website ezrainstitute.com. And uh, we also have just a couple spots left in our H. Evan Runner International Academy. That's happening June 5th to the 15th, uh, right in the heart of the Rocky Mountains in Golden, British Columbia and uh, that's our most comprehensive training program and you can find more information on that program on our website and we do still have uh, some bursaries available for the program and if you'd like to know if you qualify for those bursaries uh, please send us an email at info at ezrainstitute.ca we can help you out with that and uh, if you haven't already uh, sign up for our monthly resource email It'll be sent out next week, and it's going to include our best resources uh, from this month, as well as uh, a more thorough description of uh, how our expansion plans into the US and the United Kingdom are now very much coming together. So we're, we're pleased to release a bit more detail on that in our monthly newsletter. And you can sign up by scrolling to the bottom of our homepage, and uh, there's a contact form there. Fill that out very quick and easy, and you'll be included on our list for our monthly uh, email again. That'll go out next week. And uh, as for our conversation, like I like I mentioned, uh, "Ruler of Kings," it's out. As many of you know, uh, Joe's newest book, and we're going to work through the material uh, of the book a little bit here today. And uh, I think right off the top, tear Joe, it apart. Just tear <laughs> it right apart. That's right. <laughs> and um, yeah, so. The book, I mean, at the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, the book has been selling like crazy, uh, which has been wonderful to see. Mm. And uh, Joe, maybe maybe some thoughts right off the top here. What, why do you think that is? Why is it uh, being so well-received from really all over Canada, the United States, off to the UK? Uh, we've mentioned before, some to Finland, some to Australia, some to the Ukraine. More and, and more uh, to Australia. Yeah, that's right. To-
2: Shout out to Australia. We've really got a uh, a beachhead there.
0: There's trouble down under. So oh. that's why <laughs> put another shrimp on the barbie.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love how that's Joe's first comment on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's trouble what? There's trouble down under. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I actually have been to Australia a couple of times mm-hmm. and we did ministry. I did ministry actually um, going back gosh 25 years maybe uh, mm. on the um on the west side uh, i think sydney's on the west side anyway um sorry i was East, in perth I, I was in perth, perth not is on sydney the west. i was That's in right. perth yeah. on the west side yeah. and then uh, uh that was many years ago and then um i was uh, much more recently in um sydney a couple of years ago and um the capital mhm mm-hmm. uh and uh, had a had a really good time in melbourne right uh, speaking at a conference there actually uh was addressing the issue of the kingdom of god and mm-hmm. uh, some of the problems and challenges with two two kingdoms theology and so on mm-hmm.
2: um
0: but that was of course before the uh the crisis of the last couple of years broke mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. and it's been mm-hmm. a tough time for australians so we uh, they're in our christian believers there in our in our thoughts and prayers in australia and we're mm-hmm. obviously excited that um they're picking up our resources yeah, that's no doubt.
1: great. yeah so I mean maybe following following on
0: that Joe um
1: you you previously you know before covid before everything that's that's happened the past two years um you already had of mind to to write this book and uh, thought it was necessary uh, for for the church um why was that
0: mm-hmm well I think first because of the text you read at the beginning of the uh, program today I don't am not sure whether you gave people the reference Uh Revelation chapter 1. Right. Um and of course uh, where Christ in the present tense is referred to as the ruler of the kings of the earth in in verse 5 mm-hmm. of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Um and so of course the first reason most important reason that um I wrote the book is because Jesus is Lord and he is mm. the ruler of the Kings of the earth. Mm. And, uh, it just became, um, increasingly clear that, and it's become increasingly clear the past few years that, uh, in this whole area of Christian world and life, you, I mean, one of the things we often talk about as a ministry, uh, concerned with worldview and cultural apologetics mm. is that traditional, um, uh, Christian apologetics, as, as it's been narrowly defined, has mm-hmm. been understood as kind of a, uh, a handmaiden to evangelism. That uh, what apologetics really is, is a just a set of tools, usually a set of sort of um, fairly pre-formatted answers, right, right. whether they're theodicies or... Um, yeah, a certain uh, script you can read. If yeah, poses a particular a specific sort of. Question. Yeah, yeah, either syllogistic responses or or or, or a collection of evidences to use when somebody asks you a given question. Right. There's of course a place for some of that, but those things were really that that um, uh, role for apologetics within evangelism was really uh, something that emerged from the Enlightenment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, a essentially a Christianized it arose within the context of a largely Christianized culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting that, uh, you know, one of the things in traveling for many years in the work of Christian apologetics was that the the so-called problem of evil was not really a question that was asked in the developing world. It was very much a Western question. Um, And so some of those more um, traditional questions about, uh, you know, the the text of the New Testament, uh, the historical reasons for the resurrection... Mm -hmm. Uh, the uniqueness of Christ uh, in world religions and so on, although that perhaps has, has an, a more abiding um, purchase on apologetics today. But a lot of those questions uh, presuppose a biblical literacy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, in, in certain respects, couldn't have arisen without the backdrop of a Christian culture. As mm-hmm. we've been de-Christianizing, the questions have shifted, as we've often said here, to more civilizational, cultural, political questions and challenges to the faith the, the christian faith is not so much um uh, told it and we're not, we're not so much told it's untrue um as we are told that it's abusive yeah, uh, right. that it's um oppressive that it's misogynistic that it's mm-hmm. homophobic that it's colonialist colonialist yeah. that is anti mm-hmm. ch- anti-choice and these sorts of things and so one of the questions that we've asked for many years as a ministry for 15 years is okay, yeah, we have uh, we can defend the existence of God, fine. Um, uh, and of course, we do that in a particular way, which is to challenge the non-believer to make sense of reality without the God of Scripture. That's very different from the rationalistic approach. Mm. Uh, we um, are ready, of course, to speak of the uniqueness of Christ in the context of comparative religion. But we've been asking fundamentally... Uh, not just where is the defense of, the, uh, of some of these subsets of church dogmatics, of these Christian doctrines, but where is the defense of a Christian view of law? Where's the defense of a Christian view of politics? Where's the defense of the Christian view of economics? Where's the defense of the Christian view of human identity, human sexuality, of education, of aesthetics, uh, of um, uh, business life, and so on? In all these different areas where we see the faith being assaulted, Mm -hmm. you see this vacuum, for the most part, Mm of a Christian perspective and the defense right. of a Christian perspective. Well, you
1: mentioned going to Australia to speak to the two kingdoms issue. These are all part of the common kingdom for, for many, many folks. <laughs> this might dip us into some different
0: territory there. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, he, he doesn't miss an opportunity, does no, he? To,
2: it's a real, uh, burr in his saddle on that, that <laughs> issue. <laughs> no, it is. And this is, this is not new territory for us, as you've mentioned, but, uh, it's it's so interesting to observe that if you take out the uh, that adjective christian when you're mm. talking about a christian view of education economics mm. anything mm-hmm. else and substitute it with well is is there a jewish way to approach economics well of course there is is there an, a jewish way or an, an islamic, islamic way, way yeah, right to approach education well necessarily mm-hmm. yeah quite
0: mm-hmm. So that's right, because uh, you know, essentially, what happened is, uh, as we were secularizing, we tried to retain the Christian foundations without the substance, yeah. mm-hmm. and then that eventually became a doctrine of neutrality. Right. Um, so that uh, sort of by stealth and gradually, the notion of a distinctly Christian view of all of these different areas of life um, became a sort of cultural assumption that uh, that actually these weren't distinctly Christian; these were simply. A Western ideas right. mm-hmm. sort of uh, that ar- arose within the context of a, a secular world order, a secular uh, a political or cultural order, I should so say,
2: accidental, based on unexamined assumptions. Uh,
0: exactly, yeah. And so most Christians fell into thinking that way, mm-hmm. rather than recognizing that actually at the foundation was a distinctly Christian view that was becoming progressively distorted mm-hmm. and deformed. Mm-hmm. So, um, with Ruler of Kings, the 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 what we're really doing is um, what I've tried to address specifically in this book is to give an apologetic for a Christian view of government. Mm-hmm. Right, that's essentially what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, you know, it, it, believe it or not, it's actually possible for somebody to become a Christian through an encounter with the biblical understanding of God's mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, there's multiple entry points to the gospel. You see, um, I was explaining this to a friend recently that uh, uh, you know sometimes the the, the most uh, unlikely uh, messages or or, or or unlikely directions of or points of contact with the gospel are those which can bring people to faith. I had mm. had a good friend in England who was converted reading one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, my my own grandfather actually became a christian listening to because he was his sight wasn't good enough to read it in his late uh, mid 90s but he was um uh, he was listening to john milton's paradise lost huh. and uh, charles spurgeon at about the age of 15 i think was wandering in in, in london uh, the heavens opened it began to rain very heavily He stepped inside the the doorway of a church and heard a very poor sermon or a fragment of a sermon from uh, simply pretty much a repetition of a a text. Look to me, look uh, look ye and and be saved all the ends of the earth. And that is the thing that God gripped him with. So Mm. uh, I think sometimes as well in the sort of uh, historic sort of um, evangelical fundamentalist view We've tended to think that we need a sort of A, B, C. We need, if we unless we give people an accept, believe, commit, and a sort of little illustration of of, of a bridge to God, mm-hmm. uh, that somehow uh, Christ cannot penetrate, the Holy Spirit cannot penetrate. Well, so Ruler of Kings is a is actually a defence of a Christian view of reality, in particular looking at through the lens of of human government. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? What are the claims of Scripture with regard to Christ's lordship and His authority? How are we to understand that and how does that apply to government? Now, of course, the peculiar relevance at this time about releasing this book when we did is that we've just come through two, two years or more now of vast state overreach. When people have been sort of forced to ask to some degree questions anew about the nature of the state, the nature of the family, the nature of the church, what are the limits uh, are there God-given limits on the state? Are there God-given, God-given limits on the church? Um, what are the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ in regard to the state? What is the legitimate role and function of the state? What, are the, what is the role and the function of, uh, of, of experts or intellectuals within the context of the government of society, and so on and so forth? These kinds of questions have been coming up. And the, and the, and the issue becomes, I mean, you'll remember, Nathan, early on, mm. you know, we saw some fairly prominent Christian leaders sort of saying, we didn't study for this on the test. Right, yeah. you know, this wasn't on the test. Well, um, and I'm just thinking you, you're writing this
1: book... Uh, in the context of most pastors doing their very best to diffuse any kind of disagreements or discussions uh, over politics and government in the church.
0: Yeah. And the, the problem is, and we've touched on this before, but um, if we do not bring the word of God to bear on the issue of human government mm-hmm. and bring a scriptural apologetic for government mm-hmm. um, and do so actually from the pulpit, Mm-hmm. In, at least in a rudimentary form, if we don't do that, if we don't then bring people's thinking in the area of government and politics under the word of God, mm-hmm. we politicize the church. Right. So actually the when people say, oh, keep the, the politics out of the pulpit, mm-hmm. if you do that, if you um, uh, try and keep these critical issues that God deals with in Scripture mm-hmm. out of the Christian pulpit, uh, in the name of not wanting to be controversial, all you do is politicize the church because then all these people in the in the life of the church have never had their views of human government made subject to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And then pastors become increasingly afraid to address those right. issues mm-hmm. because they think, well, what's going to happen? People might not like me. They might leave the church. They might stop giving to the church and so on and so forth. But actually, we, we mustn't um, ecclesiasticize the word of God. And this is the great danger is that we have tended to put the word of god in service to the church institute only mm-hmm. rather than making the church institute a body that's in service to the whole world rooted in the word of god so the, the scriptures must be applied to every single area of life mm-hmm. and we must do so and as christians in each area of life each area of life we must apply it and the the, the pastor the teacher has the obligation of taking the word of god the whole council of god mm-hmm. as paul says and making sure we apply it to all the relevant areas of people's lives, and that includes government. And so that's what we're doing in Ruler of Kings. Right. And we're saying we cannot ecclesiasticize the faith and the word of God and imprison it in the life of the church institute only and say this book only has something to say about church government mm-hmm. or uh, the our, our personal Christian lives. Uh, If we do that, we actually call forth the secularization of the world. And that is exactly Mm -hmm. what's been going on. We've we've called forth the secularization of our society because we've not brought to bear Mm -hmm. a cultural apologetic. We've not brought to bear a defense of these areas of life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His Word. And so we're all at sea, we're lost when it comes to these questions, and we were lost these last two years for the vast majority of the church was utterly lost Mm -hmm. with regard to any sense of how to respond to the uh, reaction of human governments to the spread of the virus. Right.
1: Yeah, and sadly now we have many Christians being discipled by CNN News.
0: That's right, right. or c b c or the BBC that's mm-hmm. right, yeah, uh, and they're very, very poor mentors,
1: right, so why don't we just work through the book there are six chapters included, and uh why don't we go through them all one by one and and you can give some commentary on on your thoughts there
0: well there's there's um six chapters, and what we can maybe just do is give a just a very brief overview yeah just um, some overview. Um, and yeah. and drive down a little bit perhaps into one or two questions here and there, right. Um, but the the first chapter is called the rule of Christ or the cult of the expert and uh, what I'm concerned to do in in the first chapter is to set up a scriptural conversation about um, the governance of society and how we tend to see it today and how the Bible uh, sees it Um, in particular uh, It's it's if you go back to within the Western tradition, you go back to the the philosophers um, Plato and Aristotle. Mm -hmm. You see that the philosophers essentially taught that um, the governance of society belonged to a small cadre of experts. Uh, They called them the philosopher kings. That that basically only a certain class of people, those who dealt in this in the area of ideas, had the necessary. Um, education, had the necessary equipping and training to govern the plebs, Mm -hmm. that is to govern the ordinary, the plebiscites, Mm -hmm. the the ordinary people. Um, And they had their role, of course, but the role of a a particular peculiar elite was to govern society. And that was the pagan view. Mm. And actually, uh, one of the things I point out in the book is that if you go back to Egypt ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, in the, in the scriptural accounts, you see that this is not a new idea right. to have a cadre of experts essentially informing, shaping, and governing society. So Pharaoh is surrounded by his magicians. And you actually see the encounter between Moses and Pharaoh, and then Moses and the magicians, um, as uh, it, it, throughout the sort of standoff between Yahweh and um, and the, the the son of the sun god Ra, manifest in Pharaoh. So um, there's the the, the the think about the context as well in Babylon, where um, Daniel and his three friends are basically inducted in the captivity into a an elite school for uh, expert advisors and counselors to the king that's what they were there for they were they were they were seen as being having potential to be advisors to be experts within the king's court um and uh, of course you know we know we haven't got time to discuss the story of Daniel and how God gave them wisdom and understanding and insight and uh, from the very beginning they determined we're going to follow God's law and even with respect to their own diet, you'll recall at the very beginning, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they were committed to following God's word. And um, God caused them to excel because of that. I discussed that in Ruler of Kings, how how uh, God worked there. But you see it, whether it's Joseph, whether it's Daniel and his friends, uh, whether it's uh, the uh, encounter you have with Moses and the, the, uh, the magicians, and of course the Magi. Who came to, uh, who who travelled from afar? They, those were a, an elite group who advised kings and rulers, and so there's nothing particularly new about this resurgence that we're seeing today of the expert, because it was the standard pagan practice. Now, of course, back in Daniel's time, there was an expectation that you'd interpret dreams, even in, in Joseph in Egypt. Uh, you'll recall as well that uh, there was a sort of mystical, esoteric element to all of this. Um, that we don't see so much today, although actually uh, um, you do look at a number of major Western leaders over the past 25, 30 years and they actually have had and been in touch with various occult advisors. I believe that was very true with respect to Hillary and Bill Clinton and so on. So the, the, there's as we've repaganized, there is a revival of the use of um, pagan experts in the occult arts. But we've tended, as a, in the, within the sort of so-called scientific age, to focus on experts in the different fields of the sciences, right, who are suited and fitted to govern society. But never have we seen it more clearly than we have in the last two years, whether it was computer modelers or virologists or epidemiologists uh, or whoever uh cadres of experts round tables of so-called experts science panels science panels mm-hmm. yeah basically dictating to the politicians so unelected yeah uh experts in a very very narrow area telling the politicians and in fact we had our own provincial premier here admit in an interview that it's political suicide to go against the mm-hmm. the scientists and the advisors yeah right right because of what would be done to them in the media right and of course these are
1: state sanctioned experts as well and
0: these are all hand picked right. by the state mm-hmm. so um the uh, the 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 way historically has been in the western tradition is that the there was the church of Jesus Christ uh pastors priests leaders who were there to give counsel in terms of the word of god and then you're, there were your elected officials who would deliberate. Now, there's nothing wrong with a, um, uh, taking advice from people with an expertise in a give, given area. And for governments to make u- appropriate use of, uh, in a um, given situation, for example, let's say you're in a situation of, uh, of enhanced nuclear threat. Well, most uh, powers today, and certainly all the Western powers, have sophisticated intelligence services. Um, who are analysing and assessing things. We need to take counsel about that. Um, Governments have their economic advisors who are analysing the situation to give counsel, and so on and so forth. There's nothing essentially wrong with governments having advisors. The problem comes in where we start to view these experts as a kind of new priesthood. Right and that they hold a greater sway over society than the elected officials themselves, armed with common sense, and if they're listening to, of course, to the word of God, as historically Western cultures did, armed with the word of God. And from the very beginning of this whole uh, crisis, you remember that we talked a lot about the, the, the tragic reductionism on display. Mm-hmm. You know, I read an article in the Daily Telegraph today uh, that was talking about the fact that there is now a growing outbreak of hepatitis among children five years of age and under. Um, And the uh, doctors and the investigators are saying, and this is happening across the world, but it's been now tracked in the Western countries. And they're saying that this is, um, appears to be the result of lockdown. How? Mm -hmm. Well, young children were not being exposed to various viruses, various coronaviruses Mm -hmm. uh, in the early stages of their development
2: ordinary childhood diseases
0: ordinary exactly ordinary everyday exposure they weren't getting that exposure which is totally normal Mm -hmm. because and i had this argument with a professing christian doctor Mm. over email for a sustained period of time Mm. when i said to him look god i said in what sense do i have a dis-ease i mean Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. dis-ease right if my if my body has a which come my body comes into contact every day every week with viral and bacterial material mm. and if i am asymptomatic or very mu- or to the point where i can barely notice that there's anything in my system i'm not suffering i'm not diseased in any way and my body's immune system given to me by god is dealing with it um how, how is that a disease, mm-hmm. right? Your, bo- your body is made and designed by God to deal with... Ba- ba- we know more and more about bacteria, that much of the bacteria we encounter is healthy and important. We're now realizing increasingly the viruses that we encounter are important. So we've got these children with swollen livers, some of them needing transplants, many of them dying because we were locked down. Um, so the, the the problem when we come to... to, to instead of just taking counsel right having advisors give opinions because we're trying to be responsible in government that we start to delegate government to cadres of experts and this is increasingly and we and in the book i talk about this as technocracy Mm -hmm. that we're moving in a not just a marxist but a technocratic marxism has taken on a technocratic character and we we're increasingly believing that actually human technology and the sciences are the key to the government you know we heard that mantra throughout the last few years follow the science follow the science so and yet we saw the disaster of these computer models we've seen the total disaster of the claim that that vaccines prevent infection and prevent transmission mm-hmm. and now we see and we, and we and we're now seeing the the terrible fallout economically mm-hmm. socially health wise educationally yeah. of the lockdowns well, and you've often
1: posed the question who's science right follow whose science mm.
0: exactly mm. and and of course that's uh, that's at the root of an even deeper question about mm. about uh, a worldview and how there are no, no neutral scientific theories and uh, and uh, you know all of these uh, models needed a certain input basic assumptions built in to come up with the right. model but that's that's a that's a wider question sure. but to sum this one up in in this opening chapter i'm trying to say that ultimately in that from a biblical perspective the the rule of of society and of human government belongs to the lord jesus christ not cadres of experts mm-hmm. right and that uh, we can take counsel there is a role for the christian intellectual mm-hmm whose, whose product is ideas. Remember that the product of the, the, when we talk about intellectuals, we're not talking about people who are more intelligent than everybody else. Mm. That's not what an intellectual is. An intellectual is somebody whose work product is ideas. Mm. Some people's work product is tables. We sat at one there or chairs. Mm. Some people's work product is computer programs. Some people's work product is roofs on our houses. Some people's work product is food, whatever. Mm. Um, There's there's all kinds of work products that make up human culture. The intellectual's work product is ideas. And that makes it actually a very dangerous line of work. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: What's dangerous about it? Well, um, ideas have consequences. That's right. And that's why if your ideas are wrong, because they're grounded in the wrong authority, if they're not grounded in the word of God then the ideas that intellectuals have and then impose upon society can be catastrophic in their damage. Mm -hmm. And uh, by God's grace, Daniel and his friends and Joseph and others were given wisdom from the Lord so that they were able to rightly direct, submitted to the word of God. And that's, I would argue, and I argue in the book, that that's the difference between a Christian intellectual and a secular intellectual, is that the Christian intellectual is subject to the word of God in creation and in Scripture. Mm in its fullness, the whole counsel of God. And we have to think in terms of the word of God so that we can actually bring wisdom to bear. And the problem here that we've experienced is that somebody, this assumption that a person with an expertise in a very narrow area of study, somebody who's become to a degree expert, let's say in virology, that they can somehow then legislate Mm -hmm. with respect to education and Justice, economics, and economic life, and all these different—it's absurd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's totally absurd, and yet we were our cultures, our countries, were held captive, and to a large degree, continue to be held captive by so-called science tables and health experts, uh, uh, often in discussion with globalist bodies about uh, what uh, the you know this is going on right now. Discussion about a treaty a, a global treaty for the dealing with pandemics well this is all about again cadres of experts undermining national sovereignty that's another subject idea within the book we'll come to that in a moment undermining the sovereignty of nation states uh, by these binding international treaties that remove accountability and responsibility from the from the the, the uh, politicians who are elected by their own people locally mm-hmm. and delegating that power off. Not just to our own regional governments, but then to global entities mm-hmm. like the um, the World Health, uh, the WHO, the World yeah. Health uh, Organization, Organization yeah. and other such entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I'm attacking here. And I'm saying that in the cult of the expert or the rule of Christ, either we submit to Christ and His Word, and then we hold our leaders accountable in terms of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And the common sense of the ordinary person, which is often far more useful than a hat full of so-called experts. Um, because those people are encountering everyday life. And I use the illustration uh, in passing that um, one of the differences between the, the work product of intellectuals' ideas and let's say that of an engineer is that the engineer is constantly held accountable in the real world for mm-hmm. the value of their product. So if they do something and it, and it repeatedly doesn't work, that engineer is not long in the business, yeah. right? Because it's, it's, t- it's tested, you know, like uh, the, the heating engineer, if your boiler blows up repeatedly, that heating engineer is no good mm-hmm. and you're not going to hire them again. Yeah. The problem with intellectuals is that they push these ideas out there and there seems to be almost no accountability. And some of the worst ideas were just told, well, they didn't apply it quite right or it was before its time or, you know, etc. And there's all these excuses are made mm-hmm. and instead of there being actual accountability, nobody's held accountable mm. for the for their work product so the key is that we're submitted to the word of god
1: right. great and uh you know we'll move on to chapter two uh we may not have time to discuss the whole book <laughs> in this episode but that's okay maybe a two-parter maybe here. a two-parter that's right. <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah but but my t-
0: answers are shorter than normal but I uh, <laughs> yeah. you're we, doing we your still we still, <laughs> we still get there. six chapters though <laughs> <so>. <laughs>
1: But yeah, chapter two, uh, Joe, you've, you've titled Globalist Utopia versus Biblical Nationhood. And when I, when I read that title, I'm reminded of, of the title for our upcoming Mission of God conference, Utopianism versus the Kingdom of God. And I mean, the Kingdom of God, that's, that sounds like the obvious alternative to utopianism. But um, the term biblical nationhood is not nearly as straightforward. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you can explain a bit what you mean by that term.
0: Yeah, so um, the 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 contrast is uh, is between basically the the biblical view of nations uh, in terms of the overarching principle of scripture, the, the kingdom of God, and the counterfeit kingdom of God, which is utopian. And um, uh, I say that the most popular, you know, manifestation of that today is uh, the. Um, the sort of globalist, uh, the, the global technocracy, the, the notion that uh, we need to gradually break down the idea of nation-states um, and uh, come to a uh, uh, an increasingly homogenized world um, where national boundaries, distinctions are broken down. So it's not just breaking down all distinctions within your own cultural context in the name of anti-discrimination and all of that. Um, and the sort of grand leveling But you break that down globally. So utopianism really goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Thomas More coined the phrase, I think, um, utopia just means no place, no place. And um, the utopias are an attempt really to get back to the garden, to restore paradise, but by man's social planning. That uh, if we can just engineer and and, and socially reconstruct society, Um, and reinvent society so let's destroy the distinctions between male and female for example let's destroy the distinction between what marriage really is and and uh uh, any other given relationship so that none is seen as Mm. a normative or superior Uh, let's destroy um normal economic relationship that we did destroy the relationship between um the employer and the employee Mm. between the the landlord and the 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 renter, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's interesting. I was just hearing the other day that increasingly Google is trying to eliminate ref, uh, access to terms like uh, to suppress terms like landlord, so that you mm. uh, for for other you know sort of terms because that's somehow offensive that you're you know renting a property from somebody else. So this is yeah. all about. The, <laughs> Google really loves their neighbor, <laughs> don't, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so this is all about the grand leveling you what see if I it everywhere. Google.
2: <laughs> oh. Sorry. That's so okay. So uh,
0: <laughs> it, everything is uh, is yeah. It was okay, of course, for for Google to own everything. It's mm-hmm. just not okay for you. Um, so uh it's all about this 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 grand leveling of all things so that everybody in a certain sense becomes a number in this utopian world that eventually is with is one without without work um or without paid work um where everybody according to sir thomas more is you know free for um and for karl marx anyway i should say not Thomas More. Um, his was his Communist Manifesto is a little bit different. But for Marx, you know, is freed up for fornication and poetry and hunting and everything else. But and the state itself eventually then as well disappears because that's another hierarchy. But the state is the custodian of this utopia. So it has this globalist thrust. It has this globalist push. Um, and um, I think it was Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, in his um, in his work, Perpetual Peace where he outlines the fact that the global utopia is a rational necessity. And that all of this sort of nationhood, na- national sovereignty, uh, boundaries between nations, um, its self-interest of nations and so forth. This was uh, a sign of man's infancy mm-hmm. and immaturity. And that if he was to be truly rational, um, then he would pursue global government. So, you know, this is an 18th century philosopher. So, this is not a new idea. It's been percolating. I mean, and I mentioned the the earlier on in the program, the globalist utopia, the um, the the uh, national or the utopias the, of the the city utopias, the polis, mm. um, in Greek thought, where the the basically the organising principle for all of. Um, human life and society is the polis; it's political. Man is a political animal, so that's how utopianism sees man—not as a, as an, uh, as an individuals and families and communities within the kingdom of God, but as political animals defined by the state and the. They're, Id- not,
1: they're not distinct from God, right? Right. That's obviously the fundamental distinction that's raised. Well,
0: I drill down into that in *Ruler of Kings*. That in the end, uh, the 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 sort of the unified people themselves actually become a substitute God. Uh, that, that is the essence of utopianism that uh, unified man world spirit unified uh, is the self-realization of God um, the divine principle in the earth right so um, I don't want to I don't want to uh, give away all of my trade secrets in here but uh, so that people actually buy the book but um, <laughs> that's the idea of utopianism now you're right that the, the idea of, of biblical nationhood, mm-hmm. Is less understood. Is there really a, you know, you have all these Christians who just thought the EU was this marvelous thing and that mm-hmm. all these globalist bodies are wonderful and, you know, wouldn't it be better if there was a world government and all this sort of thing? You just think, well, have you done any thinking at all biblically about the kingdom of God and what God says about the nations? So let's quickly talk about that. What is the, uh, the the essence of God's an, an initial self-revelation in Scripture in terms of a people is the bringing together of a nation, the nation of Israel, and the calling out of that nation from slavery so that they'd be free to serve the Lord. So from a status culture, a pagan status culture, to be an independent nation. And then they're given the Constitution by God in the wilderness at Sinai. Now, it's very interesting that when you look at Abraham, the patriarchs, and then you look at all the kings of Israel, they're promised a nation with boundaries, uh, because that's required to have a nation. You do need borders, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the war against borders today is a reflection of the globalism, because... Uh, You know, the reason that we we see, you know, all these migrants crossing the channel to Kent in England and all the illegal immigration into Canada that's never addressed and the the massive waves of migrants in the southern U.S. border and the politicians don't seem to care is because there is an agenda there uh, that is about the, 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 the winding down of a Western identity, of a national identity not built around skin color. It never was built around skin color but around religion mm-hmm. fundamentally, around yeah. a set of values and principles. Um, and that is being undermined when you say, well, you know, we need to give equal, equal uh, consideration uh, to all religions, to Hinduism and Sikhism and Islam and everything else, because then you allow warring religious concepts into the culture, and that, they think, drives utopianism. Uh, you, now, of course, Islam itself is utopian, only their vision of utopia is all the world under the Ummah, world Islam. Um, and there's there's a real clash coming. It's, it's already happening there, actually, between Western utopianism that's driven largely by um, a critical theory today and uh, multiculturalism and queer theory and all of these things that uh, is in fundamental conflict with the Islamic uh, utopian ideal. But um, at any rate, this war on borders is part of the destruction of nationhood. So, But in the Bible, uh, God is concerned to establish nations Mm. with a specific purpose, with a specific mission. And uh, we see that so that the the patriarchs and the kings are, are promised a nation, but they're never promised an empire. No imperial promise is ever made to Israel, to the patriarchs, to the kings of Israel, because the only person who has imperial prerogative over the whole earth, no, it's not Rick Warren, Nathan, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, it's not Klaus Schwab either. Um, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. right? The only person who has imperial prerogatives in terms of his kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually men and nations are called, and nations are called to serve lord jesus christ look at psalm 2 mm-hmm. the nations the rulers, the kings of the earth the judges of the earth are called so that nations if if there's a global one world government how can nations serve the lord no they can't they're not free to serve him in the same way that you if you're in a status culture and the individual doesn't have freedoms you're not and all the church doesn't have freedoms and you're you're not free to serve the lord it's the same for nations Now, you fast forward, you look at um, the Great Commission. The Lord Jesus tells us, he sends us out to disciple, not simply individuals. We're sent to disciple nations. That presupposes a distinction between the nations. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17, you remember his conversation with the uh, Athenian philosophers? Uh, And he says that the God who made heaven and earth... Yeah, he's not served uh, by hands in, temp- in in temples made by man's hands um, since he gives life and breath to all things. But he goes on to say uh, he has established the boundaries of our habitation so that men might reach out for him. So he established the boundaries of the nations so that we might reach out for God. So there is a missiological purpose in Israel being a nation, not an imperial power, but a nation, uh, there's a missiological purpose in Christ the King, the ruler of the kings of the earth, sending out his international kingdom people throughout all the nations to disciple nations. And then if for a clincher, when you look at the book of Revelation, you see that the reality of nations, of tribes, is an eschatological reality. It's a reality at the end. It will always be a reality. All this attempt to destroy nationhood... A national sovereignty is in rebellion against God because the scripture says that uh, at the end every tribe and this is the language exactly of scripture every Mm -hmm. tribe every tongue every people and nation from every tribe from every tongue from every people from every nation God has made a kingdom of priests unto himself and they shall reign forever. So right there at the Eschaton, you have tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. And from all of them, you have a kingdom of priests. And that, by the way, is the beauty of life, that you have distinct peoples, beautiful, distinct nations with beautiful different clothes and different music and uh, different food Mm -hmm. and different ways in which their social orders have certain uniquenesses. Um, because of their geography, because of their language, because of their climate, all these different things. Most fundamentally, because of their faith. And as the Christian faith is proclaimed and then positivized, made concrete in all of those societies, the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel doesn't destroy diversity; it brings unity in the midst of the diversity. So, around the Lord's table, Paul talks about there being neither. Slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian or scythian. Uh we're one in Christ, but that unity does not destroy the diversity. And it's the coming together of that diversity of eventually, in the terms of the promises and of the kingdom of God, the nations of the world, discipled under the Lord Jesus Christ, bring all the riches of of those cultures, bring all the riches of those diverse expressions to the foot, the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible teaches not uh, utopianism, not statism. And, of course, the ultimate, the absolute, the ultimate expression of statism is globalism, right? It's the state enlarged to the point that it's global Mm -hmm. and that national sovereignty is being more and more Uh, uh, divested and invested in uh, global uh, entities, treaties, with many of these people hoping that one day the world will be run by one great big global government. Well, that is Mm -hmm. fundamentally anti the teaching of the Bible from Genesis, from the calling of Abraham, right through to the book of Revelation. The the scriptures believe that, that teach us that God has established the nations for a purpose, the boundaries of our habitations, so that we can be free to serve the kingdom of God. If we weren't, if we don't have this diversity of nations, then in any period of history, where a, um, if you've got a global situation where that uh, uh, global entity is in rebellion against God, none of the nations are free to serve the Lord. Mm. So freedom is paramount in order to serve the kingdom of God. So we are to have friendly relationships between the nations. We can have um, uh, mutual uh, uh defense uh, treaties with other nations with christendom used to be essentially that it was a, it was an area of the world that was mutually uh, in agreement that defended one another and that's all fine and we we want good trade relations we want tourism, we want all of these blessings. These are wonderful developments of globalization. That's mm-hmm. not the same as globalism. Right. Mm-hmm. Globalization is just about the speed with which information and mm-hmm. sharing takes place. Right, we have to be careful not to conflate those two things. Exactly. Yeah. We it, That's a danger, because mm-hmm. we're not against the interaction of right. nations and peoples. The mm-hmm. Bible is not against that. Mm-hmm. The, the places into which the gospel was coming in the scriptures were cosmopolitan places. Mm-hmm. Rome was an incredibly cosmopolitan area. The cities of Rome were so it's not that it's to do with the spread of the faith freedom and and the fact that then peoples and nations can have specific callings. And actually mm. we do recognize that to a degree because with all our talk of globalism, when Russia invades the Ukraine, mm. everybody's up in arms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Suddenly national sovereignty is important again. Mm. Borders are important again. Right. And suddenly everybody's uh, waving the Ukrainian flag. Mm-hmm. Um, So there's something in human beings that recognizes, you know what, national sovereignty, borders, they're important. And yet with the ideology in Mm -hmm. the West today, they're always trying to destroy them. So they're schizophrenic, which is Mm -hmm. it? So I deal with that subject in chapter two in some detail and try and paint Mm -hmm. a picture of what the Bible teaches us, uh, the foundational worldview that the Bible gives us. for developing a proper Christian understanding of nations mm-hmm. and the relationship between yeah, nations.
1: It's real, really interesting, too. You just commented on Russia. It's interesting how so many people now are ready to say that country's ideology is wrong. We need right. to keep them away from our country.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it, it destroys the, the, the myth. Well, of course, it destroys the myth of neutrality. and also destroys the, 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 the idea that cultures and nations aren't, are neutral, um, in their um, in their dealings with one another, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there is an ideological drive behind the thinking of all of the nations, mm-hmm. and when those come into conflict, you have conflict because the <laughs> ideologies are in conflict, right? So, how about that? Uh, you know, it's it actually isn't rocket science. So these things we we unpack. I unpack there in 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 chapter two. Right. Great. Well, Maybe we've got, got time to... to tackle one more chapter just briefly.
2: You think so? All right, we can, uh, and then we, we can st- hit, hit up chapter three, and then we'll have uh, we'll have some some more grist for the mill for next week. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So in uh, in chapter three, Joe, moving brightly along here, the title is religion, government, and the secularist illusion. Uh, you've j- just finished talking about uh, our efforts at paradise by social planning, and a point that you make in in uh, this chapter. Is that in our day and age we've been uh, we've been so conditioned to uh, to think of government as civil government that we you we say the government with that definite article mm-hmm. and everyone knows exactly which government we're we're talking about. But you make the point that you know there are there are smaller governments, there are smaller spheres of sovereignty shot through uh, society. Yeah, and that. Uh, the, the question of government is uh, is inescapable, and the task of government has been given to each one of us on some level.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's just uh, touch on this one really quickly as we as we draw this to a conclusion for this week. But um, yes, in the in the, the the whole secularist illusion. First of all, what I try and paint the picture of in in the third chapter is that uh, religion is foundational life right. is religion mm-hmm. it it cannot be escaped so you might disestablish a particular faith in a given country you might disestablish christianity but that won't make government or the state religiously neutral that's right you merely replace it with some other faith it might be islamic humanistic hindu something else but something else will simply take the place of christian establishment there is the neutrality is a mirage. There is always, government is always being led by substantive values. All of its laws are, are uh, enacted in terms of a set of values, um, in, in terms of a moral vision. And, um, and behind every vision of society, especially every law, is a principle of sovereignty and a, an, an idea of divinity. So there is no neutrality. And so what I try and destroy in this chapter is first the myth of neutrality. And um, we touched just earlier on the fact that there's, we've sort of been sold the pass in the West, that um, uh, our, our public space is secular, um, and that society, we live in a secular society, um, and, uh, and also that we live in a democratic society. And those two things have tend to have gone hand in hand with one another, that we live in a democratic, secular society. And so, what I try to do is is challenge the uh, uh some of the illusion there. Um, and um, first of all, point out and you've uh, touched on it a bit there, Ryan, that um, the society as a whole is uh, is not secular in all of its parts. If secular means purely of this world, in terms of thinking only in terms of the imminence philosophy of humanism, of uh, God's out of the picture. Because churches are part of society, aren't they? Families are part of society, aren't they? So if families and churches are part of society, and and still considerable percentages of those people, of people in our society, uh, believe in God, uh, believe that uh, God ha- has a relevance to the way that I live, the way that I lead my family and so forth, then we can't say that society is secular. You might say there's a government that's secular being led, led by secular ideas. But you see, we move from that to importing the notion of secularity into all of society. And, and, and we sold this religious pass effectively because what we were told is that secularism was going to, was going to preserve freedom for all religion. And that it was a neutral arbiter between the faiths, and really all that happens is that secular the principles of secularism, which we'll talk about next week, um, install themselves as the new religion. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So they become secularism becomes the established religion, because the whole idea of of saying well we live in a multicultural pluralistic society was to simply destabilize the Christian centre, push it off to the side, and say you're just you're just one among many religious claimants. So secularism must arbitrate. So to say society is secular is misleading. And then secondly, to say that um, society is democratic is also misleading, because there are various forms of government within society. And Ryan, you touched on it. It's not just the civil government. Um, And when we talk about democracy, uh, in a narrow sense, Um, uh, properly defined um, when we talk about a democratic society we simply mean a description about the way we install people into office that's right that is that we vote uh, and uh, there is the participation of the people in their own government by electing representatives Um, that is the democratic process uh, which of course we're supportive of um, and that that emerge very much within the within the context of a of, of a Christian culture. Um, so the 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 way in which we install political leaders is democratic, but that doesn't make society democratic. Same point. My family is not a democracy. I don't take votes with my children on what the rules of the house are going to be, or whether mm. they're going to go to school, or what's going to. Be. My wife doesn't get a vote on what's going to be for dinner. Mm. Families are hierarchical structures. And, uh, of course, there's a war against the family and the, the hierarchy of the family because of our, the utopian drift of our culture. But I was
2: going to say, there's probably some postmodern family counsellors who would like a word there. but
0: <laughs> You're not wrong. So that, 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 that very notion itself is... You know, I, was talk, I think I was talking to Nathan today about the increasing diagnosis of... What was it? Uh, um, was it ODD? Oh. ODD. Oppositional, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oppositional defiance disorder oppositional defiance disorder is now a, apparently a psychological condition it's not disobedience mm. anymore not dis- oh yeah it's not it's not um an, you know lack of parenting disorder it's it's um oppositional defiance disorder but mm. the family is, there, is a is there hierarchy a pill that they can give you for it probably oh. yeah mm-hmm. um a banquet so, of them
2: oh, mm-hmm. uh, so i made myself sad <laughs>
0: So you can you, you can look at the family and say, well, this is not a democracy. Look at the church; the church isn't a democracy. It's governed by elders. Mm-hmm. Uh, your business, where you work, is not a democracy. You don't get to vote on what your salary is going to be. So, uh, so um, our society is not democratic. And so, um, what I'm trying to do in in this third chapter is to show that that, that um, the the idea of a religiously neutral public space is a myth. Um, And that um, government is something more than civil government. There are multiple forms of government. And that secularity really is a past that we were sold where we thought that we could have all of the blessings that came with a Christian social order, that we could retain them without the foundation. And we have started to realize over the last 50 years, and especially the last 20, and most especially the last three, that... Um, Not only are there some cracks in the walls, um, but uh, the walls are falling down, the roofs caving in, right? Because the foundation has been destroyed. And that's, of course, what the psalmist says, when the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Mm -hmm. You cannot retain things like genuine liberty for the individual, for the family, for the church. You cannot retain genuine economic freedom, national freedom and sovereignty without the the Christian foundation that they're built on. And as we've seen that undermined, all of those things we're now seeing undermined to the point where you don't have control right now, as far as this government is concerned, over your own body. You are not allowed to travel, get on a train, get on a plane, unless you take a state-mandated medical treatment. So if you think that you can retain these fundamental liberties, liberties that built prosperity... That gave us our institutional freedoms without the foundation we're realizing we're seriously mistaken and that's really what ruler of kings is about that's the first three chapters mm. we'll deal with the, the next three next week in, right. in summary form mm. um but that's um that's the the difference between do we do we fundamentally fundamentally want the lord jesus christ as our lord and king mm. or do we want a cult of a cadre of statist experts Governing and regulating every aspects of our lives, even our own bodies, mm-hmm. and that's what the choice is coming down to increasingly in our time. Right.
1: Well, thanks, Joe. Uh, as you mentioned, we'll wrap up the discussion there, but we'll we'll be sure to pick it up next week. Ryan, where can our listeners uh, buy themselves a copy of "Ruler of Kings"?
2: Yep, uh, that uh, that book is available along with the rest of our uh, our published catalog. That's at EzraPress.ca, and you can find "Ruler of Kings" and. I'm just thinking about this right now but if uh, I'll we'll put a uh, we'll put a discount code in there we'll put about uh, you, you can save something if you type the code podcast if you order that great. starting tomorrow or mm-hmm. starting yeah Wednesday the 26th mm-hmm. type the code podcast when you order ruler of kings and uh, you'll get a deal on that if you order it uh, this week
0: great awesome. sounds like a bargain mm-hmm
1: we got any Rick Warren titles there in the store?
2: <laughs> uh, sold out. Uh, he did. Uh, oh. oh!
0: <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> well, I'd better go home and purge my, my library of Rick Warren titles.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks again for listening and supporting the work of our ministry. This has been the Podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Reminding you that from him, through him, and to him are all things. To God be the glory.